0: We live in a world where it's going to be easier and easier for everyone to start. Get capital will be easy. The building blocks to build something will be easy. The ability to build a team will be easy. What will differentiate is your ability to figure out where you're different.
1: Welcome to the Authentically Successful Show. I'm Carol Schultz, founder and CEO of Vertical Elevation, a talent equity and leadership coaching and advisory firm. We partner with founders and CEOs to create talent-centric organizations, either where they don't currently exist or rebuild companies into talent-centric organizations. We are committed to supporting your vision and values by creating healthy, successful companies, leveraging the best talent, retention, development, and succession strategies. Listen at the end of the show for information about becoming my next guest on one of the most important podcasts for building thriving companies. Here we go. Joining me today is Jitesh Shetty, founder and CEO of Credible, an environmental, social, and governance management SaaS company. A serial tech entrepreneur, prior to Credible, Jitesh founded Quick Labs in 2012, a public cloud based lab management platform, which was acquired by Google in 2016. Jitesh has built large scale software products and teams at companies like Yahoo and Google. He sits on the board of ECU Worldwide, which is the largest less than container load consolidator with revenues exceeding $2 billion U.S. for 21 and 22. He's an early stage investor in 17 companies and holds two U.S. patent grants in the cloud computing space. He's someone I've known for a number of years, and I'm really glad to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. Thank you so
0: much uh, for having me. Uh, Excited to be here, looking forward to this conversation.
1: Yeah, me too. So Chitesh, what is the biggest problem Credible solving for its clients?
0: Yeah, so what happens today, if you think about... uh, Let me just expand what ESG is. ESG is Environmental Social Governance. Uh, And uh, uh, what happens is a lot of businesses today purely focus on... uh, profits and uh, the way we think about, uh, you know, in a very capitalist world, uh, the key driver is, you know, revenues, profits. And uh, ESG sets a a compass and a framework to also focus on, uh, are you good for the environment as a business? Are you good for uh, when it comes to social KPIs as a business? And do you have the right governance structure? Overall, is your business sustainable? for the planet, uh, for society, and e- even even for investors, right? Is this a sustainable mm-hmm. business? Let's see if you're in the coal space, you know, uh, uh, ultimately it's not sustainable for the planet if you're just, just going nuts, burning coal, but it's also right. not sustainable as an investor. Mm-hmm. So this uh, has come under the radar uh, for governments, uh, you know, uh, businesses, there are uh, uh, there are groups focused on this. Uh, what we are focused on, we believe, the long pole in the tent is a data and visibility problem. What do I mean by that? Uh, as a business, what is your ESG posture? Really, what is your carbon footprint? You know, are you doing good on the social side? Uh, uh, you know, uh, if your supply chain is sitting somewhere uh, three thousand miles away, you know, do you have visibility into uh, you know fair pay there? What's the split between male-female? Is child labor Mm happening? We believe this is a data problem. And we believe it's a a fragmented data problem, meaning Mm -hmm. that the data is not just in your enterprise. It's split across enterprises. So -hmm. how do you connect that? How do you stitch that? How do you make sure the data is accurate? And how do you make that available in Mm -hmm. near real time? So we solve that problem, right? We solve that problem at scale. We have close to forty-eight businesses as of yesterday using our platform at scale, right? Uh, awesome. And uh, we are we are really kind of uh, you know uh, doubling down uh, on on that focus. Very
1: interesting. So so, he, I, I just want to step back a second. You mentioned you know coal and so on, and you know being being certainly uh, not really uh, clean or sustainable. But you know, we hear we hear a word, and and I don't know if you have anything to say about this, referred to as clean coal, (laughs) which you know to me is sort of sort of an oxymoron, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it it, you know, can you even comment on is that such a thing, and why and and why are people trying to to get that to be picked up by people?
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a good, uh, very good question, Carol. So one thing that's happening is uh, I think businesses are looking. At a transition period, meaning they are saying, you know, uh, that uh, coal, uh, let's say we are doing copper cobalt mining, uh, which goes into uh, EV batteries. It's a necessary evil until the time we fully transition out uh, from uh, fossil based fuel to to really kind of, uh, you know, uh, green energy, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, During that period, uh, the idea is a lot of businesses are taking an approach uh, that we will use Uh, the most sustainable approaches uh, to do mining. Uh, You know, example, we'll do fair pay. We'll make sure that, you know, uh, safety regulations are uh, followed. Mm -hmm. Uh, We will make sure as a business we are transitioning uh, beyond this. The poster child example in the whole world is an Indian company called Adani. The founder is the second richest person in the world. And he sits uh, across the spectrum. He runs uh, one of the largest coal operations in the world. But he all, uh, this company also has the largest kind of sustainable solar-based uh, energy footprints in the world, right? Mm. And uh, they are making a pitch. See, we are transitioning away from this, right? Uh, and and that's, that's something when people uh, refer to it as, you know, this is green coal, sustainable
1: coal. Very interesting. So you're currently, you've raised 2.4 million seed. Uh, And I know you're working on um, your A round for uh, about $12 million. It should close sometime after the first of the year. Um, What has your investors excited about Credible? Yeah, yeah, that's a a very good question.
0: So they're excited about a few things. One is, you know, uh, as a a software entrepreneur, I've realized uh, two things are the most important. One is a deep insight into a domain. uh, And second... But deep inside is where you're going very, very heads down. You're in the domain and you realize, oh, geez, you know, this problem hasn't been solved. No one has seen this. Right. That's one thing you want to be, right? Uh, and the second, you want to be at a macro level in a space that's growing. So we yeah. believe that we are doing both, right? We, we We are in a situation where both is happening sustainability ESG data uh, mm-hmm. the, uh, uh, data platform there. At a macro level, we are in the right space. Uh, and then at a very kind of, uh, you know, uh, specifically when it comes to a deep insight, we have figured out a deep insight that as a business, if you're telling this is your ESG posture without visibility into your supply chain and value chain, that doesn't mean a lot. There's already regulation coming in. There's regulation in Asia. The regulation in EU, there's regulation coming in in the US, which will make this mandatory, right? So if I'm a textile a brand uh, and uh, most of my manufacturing happens somewhere 3,000 miles away, I don't have visibility into it. I can't accurately say what my ESG is. So both these things are inv- investors are excited about. One, we are in the right space at a macro level, at a 40,000 feet level. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes to a uh, insight, uh, we, we have
1: figured out the right insight. So you know, this is not your first rodeo at founding a company. As I said, you've you've founded three startups. This is your third. What's the genesis of this particular idea like? How did it come to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a you know, uh, I think
0: uh, at least with me, most things have happened accidentally. You know, very interestingly, right? They yeah. have happened accidentally. So the, the so this one, the way it came is uh, uh, we are uh, four uh, co-founders. Mm-hmm. And three of us uh, uh, grew up in India, but spent right. twenty years in the u s right? Uh, and one of them moved back uh, to India, right and uh, something we all uh, grew up uh, watching is that you know how the supply side for a lot of commodities uh, mm-hmm. is uh, is based out of Asia, yeah right? I mean, think mm-hmm. of clothing, think yeah, of anything of that's a commodity, right? Mm-hmm. and uh, you uh, get. Uh, uh uh you know the bargain is bad on the supply side right we grew up seeing that and uh, i i'm okay saying this in the 80s it was a common thing seeing uh, you know kids working in a factory right right uh, so one of the things we said is uh, you know is this still happening right mm-hmm. uh, and it, it just uh, 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 we 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 just started asking this question you know so much manufacturing still happens in india mm-hmm. of course 80 90% happens in china we were hearing yes. all this Or it's stories even with kind of really uh, big uh, cell phone manufacturers, right? right? right. Uh, That the uh, conditions are not good. We were like, Mm -hmm. is this happening in India? And the good news was India is in a lot, lot better state just naturally when it comes to manufacturing. Mm -hmm. The conditions are uh, a lot better. But we realized that this is still a problem when it comes to insight and getting visibility into the data, right? Uh, and that's how kind of it started and it started by talking to a few suppliers here. They were like our buyers and brands. They ask us uh, uh, for this data and we don't have a good way to provide this data, right? That, that's essentially
1: how it started. So, so it, right. So, so the, the, the people buying want to make sure that they're buying from somebody who's doing business and, you know, with integrity and not taking advantage of people. Yeah, exactly. So it's a risk it. management platform in some sense right
0: uh, the buyers want to manage their risk yeah that's really interesting
1: so um it, it, I, I, I you know you mentioned you you know there's three, there are four co-founders and i do want to also point out that three of you are repeat founders <laughs> yeah um so i want to talk a little bit about first you know your journey through your other two startups i'd like you to talk a little bit about quick labs and your other startup um, and how those came to be, um, and particularly some of the lessons, especially in your first startup as a leader, some of the mistakes you made and what you learned from that, that you've now carried forward.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, I grew up, uh, in, uh, India and where I grew up at home, there was a very enterprising culture, right? So, uh, almost, uh, it's, it's strange, but, uh, India has a culture where, uh, uh, you're almost wired sometimes to start your own business, yeah. right? And small and mid-sized businesses are massive in India, what's called SME yeah. here. So I grew up a little bit in that that kind of household. I moved to the US in 2002 to start mm-hmm. uh, a PhD program at USC, did my graduate program, did some mm-hmm. research and then started working, right? Uh, then I moved from LA to the Bay Area and the Bay Area is, uh, is, has a very unique uh, just, just culture of, startups oh, and sure. businesses you know mm-hmm. and uh, my roommates started a music streaming uh, startup which which did very well but uh, from from some uh, uh, KPIs but didn't have a good exit right So while I was uh, uh, kind of I was involved with that but then I started working at Yahoo Yahoo was a was a darling of the Beria back in the day yes yeah. 2008 and Yahoo had a piece of technology, uh, built uh, to do uh, kind of big data for uh, their ad business, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and uh, what uh, our idea was in my first startup of Russian IT Solutions was how do we take this technology called Hadoop and we kind of built a very commercial business around it uh, mm-hmm. for enterprises and we chose one enterprise, which was the pharma s- space. So pharmaceutical right. com- companies have an interesting problem where you know they do a lot of uh, uh, they collect a lot of data before a drug really goes to market it's seven right. years in the US <clears throat> you know uh, and that was the idea right and uh, and it became uh, it was a decent business good cash flow but it was very hard to productize right it was very hard to see how do you build a product business out of this and it was becoming more and more like a Professional services business, which has a very different business model, you know, uh, uh, people's driven, you know, low margins, uh, less EBITDA. Uh, and at some point I felt uh, this is this is not going to scale and we shut down that business, right? We said mm-hmm. this is not a venture style business. And the, uh, the big learning there was, you know, uh, you have to have the ability to say no. It's not always about saying yes. But really kind of, uh, you know, looking at an opportunity and saying, is this really what you want to do and the ability to say no, right? And I try to really almost uh, meditate and wire that into uh, my line of thinking now that how do you say no more than saying yes? And I'll talk a little bit about that, right? It comes down to this uh, thing I've built around focus. The second company was, you know, I got married and moved to Boston and the public cloud was a big mm-hmm. deal. Yeah, uh, And I, I I got convinced to move to Boston through Joe right. Kinsella, who's a common right. friend.
1: Who, who, who uh, introduced us? Yeah, Joe Kinsella. Yeah. Co-founder of Cloud Health Technologies. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. And Joe was an early uh, proponent of the public cloud. I started working at mm-hmm. a company in Boston uh, which was an early user of the public cloud. and And uh, I was completely convinced this is the this is uh, the next big thing, right? It's right. just starting. this is super revolutionary. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I met uh, Ennis Konak. Ennis was based out of uh, Boston. He was working at VMware. He was running almost, I think, close to a three hundred million dollars PNL. I could be mm-hmm. plus or minus fifty million dollars here and there. And one of the things he was running was education right? Uh, uh, Training and certification for Mm -hmm. VMware, right? And an interesting thing happens in enterprise software businesses. Uh, uh, You want enough people in the market to know your technology so that your technology gets adopted and used and, you know, that leads to better selling, right? You you need Mm -hmm. enough talent to know your technology. Mm -hmm. So what Ennis saw, long story short, at VMware was that most Trainer, most students who are paying for this training, $2,000, $3,000 worth of training, they were saying that we need hands on learning more. We need labs Mm more. Right. Right. So, that insight, again, as I said, one of the key things is a deep insight. So, that insight uh, was something he He said, you know, we should build a company around it. And again, I met him accidentally through a common friend. I was already bought into the public cloud. And the Mm -hmm. idea we then built around is that you could build this on the public cloud. You could Mm -hmm. build the lab platform on the public cloud, right? So Quicklabs was all about that. It's a a learning platform, Mm -hmm. uh, which is hands-on learning. And all the infrastructure uh, is spun on the public cloud, right? Uh, without the uh, the creators of the content uh, even realizing which cloud uh, you're uh, spinning this on and the yeah. learners right and we do that at a very large scale in that
1: business and I also want to note that um, Amazon was a customer of yours <laughs> and uh, and as I mentioned in in the introduction you ultimately sold to Google but both Amazon and Google were vying for for your attention. <laughs> to purchase you (laughs) and you know for obvious reasons right given what you were doing um and i'm sure that that um you know as we had talked um you know google just really came with the 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 offer that made more sense to you did you stay on with with quick labs for a certain period of time through the transition
0: yes yes i did uh so amazon uh, was our first customer You know, Mm -hmm. and we uh, built, uh, essentially understood the problem space, uh, understood uh, uh, some of, uh, built that early version of the product uh, with uh, uh, Amazon, right? Uh, And the timing was very interesting. This was 2012. Amazon was launching their first developer conference called ReInvent. And uh, they were going to uh, announce uh, that now we have training as as an offering. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, in uh, uh, in their uh, kind of uh, commercial on the commercial side, right? Mm-hmm. We'll have now mm-hmm. uh, training and certification, mm-hmm. um, and uh, uh, it was it was a really good relationship. Uh, they are uh, they're uh, they're an amazing company, a uh, lot to learn from, and mm-hmm. uh, it was uh, it was a fun experience, right, working with them that closely. Uh, and I stayed at Google for over four years, right. Uh, Ultimately, it made sense to sell to Google uh, mm-hmm. for uh, not just the just the exact price, uh, but also a couple of other reasons, right. Uh, so as founders, as board members, we felt uh, you know uh, it was a fiduciary responsibility to sell to Google for you know uh, shareholders and everything, right. it It just made uh, sense mm-hmm. uh, from an offer standpoint. Uh, and google is an amazing amazing company it's uh, uh, it uh, there are a lot of good things to say about google but one thing i will say is it figures out uh, it has figured out a very unique way of how do you collaborate right you know collaboration is very hard i believe it's still a very hard problem as the size of the team or the company grows google at that size has still figured out a very good way So how to work collaboratively in engineering and product, Mm -hmm.
1: especially. Yeah, that's really interesting. So let's talk a little bit more about the ESG space. I mean, what's the competitive nature of this market that you're in? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So there are uh, are a few things happening from a competitive landscape. One is there are really big companies like SAP that have an offering in this space. Mm -hmm. And then there are smaller companies, right? Now, the difference is the big companies are coming very top down. What do I mean by that? They are saying that we already have a footprint when it comes to software mm-hmm. in the enterprise. We are, uh, SAP has its own ERP system. Right, of course. It has its own PO management system. So we will incrementally build an ESG product, which they've already built, uh, around, uh, you know, solving, uh, essentially trying to solve the same problem. Then there are startups and smaller companies who are taking a very fresh view, uh, and I think the difference is, uh, you know, uh, companies like ours, we are a better positioned to productize this well, mm-hmm. and our product is built around three pillars: measure, okay. manage, and report. Measure okay. accurately, effectively the ESG footprint of your uh, business and your supply chain. Once mm-hmm. you measure that. Uh, you know, better manage it, set goals, KPIs in a better way, and then auto- do almost automated reporting, right? Mm-hmm, so we support mm-hmm. a few standards and frameworks where mm-hmm. you can do automated reporting. I think that is very hard for a big company to go and productize well, just because they have so much history, legacy, around wow, how they yeah. think about software. Got it. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and uh, and I think, uh, you know, ESG visibility into supply chains is is the key. That's where what's called scope three. Uh, You know, I sit on uh, the board of this extremely innovative company called EQ Worldwide. uh, And EQ is the largest LCL consolidator in the world. LCL is uh, less than container load. When you're moving freight around uh, in in ships, uh, a big chunk of that freight is less than container load, right? So they are almost like the Uber of uh, shipping. They don't own any of these assets, but they smartly figure out you know, how do you consolidate a container, take that capacity risk and uh, do that globally? And there also I see one of the biggest footprints when it comes to ESG scope 3, right? It's your It's your shipping partner. It's your trucking partner, you know, how are they doing?
1: Interesting. So, so uh, that's a great analogy saying that, you know, this less than container um, uh, load is, is analogous to what Uber is doing, right? You know, Uber doesn't own any of its own vehicles, right? So clearly these guys don't own their containers, but when you say less than container, does that mean that people are shipping something that doesn't fill an entire container? So they're trying to fill it up with somebody else's products. So they're not wasting space.
0: Yeah. 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 So it's two things. One is overfill. One is underfill. Right. Okay. Uh, so right. one is, you know, you have a set of companies uh, that are uh, doing this. They are buying containers, uh, but they they now have, uh, you know, uh, uh, made a commitment uh, to a shipper like, let's say, Apple. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Apple uh, uh, is their customer. And now right. they have a little more than uh, the uh, the container space they have. Then right. that they will move to us. Right. They will tell us that, you know, can you carry this uh, in your container? Uh, and then the other is, uh, you know, your your load itself is less. Uh, and where does this happen? Uh, the biggest you see it is in these modern e-commerce D2C companies, mm-hmm. companies that mm-hmm. are on Shopify, uh, companies that, uh, you know, uh, initially start with the FBA model on Amazon, then move and start their own kind of mm-hmm. uh, uh, the uh, website. They go direct to the consumer. Uh, that's
1: where uh, you see it, right? So that's less than container load, right? got it okay great thank you for clarifying that so if you stepping back a minute to to you know you and your three co-founders you know i have said many 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 times and whenever it is appropriate to say and i think it is here that prior successful founders will have a greater probability to be successful in their next startup right not i mean it's not a guarantee it's never a guarantee but you have a greater probability to succeed. Whereas first-time founders have a greater probability to fail because I've never done it before. They have to go through all their mistakes. So, you know, if you look at, first of all, how did the three, the four of you come together in this particular venture? And, you know, when you look at your leadership and, you know, what are your other co-founders? What are their roles in the organization? And what have, you know, can you, can you sort of quantify one or two or three things that you all have learned in your past startups that have then propelled you to, to have a probability of greater success in this one?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I strongly believe that as a repeat entrepreneur, you just have an unfair advantage, right? (laughs) Uh, And uh, one, uh, you know, uh, uh, one thing is uh, you have seen the process once uh, fully. All yeah. the way, right, from, you know, how do you do the capital structure, you know, uh, what does MVP mean, you know, how do you get your mm-hmm. first customer, you know, those things, right? So uh, my uh, so I run the business as a CEO. I'm responsible for the business. The other founder is a CTO. Uh, he worked uh, at uh, StumbleUpon for a long time, very mm-hmm. closely with Garrett Camp, who's the chairman of Uber. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he co-founded a company called Promote. Uh, the third co-founder uh, runs all sales and revenue. He mm-hmm. built a music streaming company, which was uh, acquired by Pandora. And the fourth <laughs> one is responsible for uh, all business development. And he has deep experience in supply chain. So we bring right. a very kind of complementary set of uh, strengths, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to the table. And mm-hmm. all four have learned different things, right, from from past uh, past experience, you know so my biggest thing i would say are those two things right one is you have to have a key insight uh, and then you have to be in a market that's very big and growing right mm-hmm. you have to time it where uh, you know it's kind of getting uh, you, uh, you you see that it's leading and you have uh, you, you have caught it right at that time mm-hmm. right those two are extremely important uh, I think the other thing, uh, again, at a personal end, as a professional founder, you know, I've realized that, you know, your ability to focus and to say no, right? Uh, so I think uh, you, you have to have the ability to say no, right? We live in a world where it's going to be easier and easier for everyone to start. What will differentiate yourself? Your ability to get capital will be easy. The building blocks to build something will be easy. The ability to build a team will be easy. What will differentiate is your ability to focus and figure out that where you are different. You know, uh, 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 that is super important, right? And and that that is something you have to develop over a period of time.
1: You have mentioned a number of times now the ability to say no. Say no to whom, about what? I want you to say a little bit more about that.
0: Yeah, you have to have the ability to say no to uh, what you're building, right? So if you're trying to build something, let's say you're you're building, uh, in this case, a SaaS ESG product. Uh, The moment you start there and you're out in the market, you'll have a tsunami of requests saying, You know, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Why don't you do this? So you have to say no to 99% of the things on the product side. Right. On the commercial side, you have to say no to a lot of things, right? You have to say no to revenue that is not strategically right. Example, as a product company, you will have hundreds of opportunities uh, to say, uh, uh, you know, yes to professional services revenue, right? Revenue, which is very people driven. Uh, where, uh, you know, uh, the people are part of the cox, your margin is low, you know, it's a different kind of business, you don't want to build that, but you'll find early customers who will say, why don't you also help me uh, build my ESG journey? Uh, and so give me the advisors, give me the professional services people, and then I'll buy your product, right? So how do you say no to that when you, you're not even... Uh, uh, right. Uh, you're not even there yet, right? And and you know, my uh, Ennis had uh, had a quote. My uh, ex partner, uh, uh-huh. uh, and uh, the, and I, I really, really think about that always, right? Startups don't starve; they drown. Yeah, you will never be. You, 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 there will never be less opportunity, but can you be focused? You know, that mm-hmm. is super key.
1: Yeah, that's. I'm so glad you mentioned that because you know, I've I've so often heard people say. Oh, you know, we we just, we need the money so bad. We just, you know, want to take on, want to take on this customer, you know? And it, you know, it, it, it so often ends up just working out not in your favor to do it that way. Yeah. You know, and to really, to really have that focus and be very, very clear what makes sense for you as a business, you know, the last thing you need is a customer who's gonna, who's not a right, the right customer for you. I mean, all the money in the world doesn't make that work. <laughs> absolutely. Know? so so you're up to about uh, getting closing in on fifty customers. How are you finding your customers and how are they finding or and or how are they finding you?
0: Yeah, so it's a combination of three things we are doing today. Uh, one is uh, you know esG uh, falls under uh, risk and uh, the CFO ladder. Uh, Mm. So we have partnered with an advisory firm uh, that provides, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, advice and it uh, helps uh, CFOs, uh, you know, figure out their uh, ESG roadmap. So that is one go to market. The second is direct sales uh, selling to big, uh, you know, enterprises uh, through very uh, kind of uh, high touch uh, sale. And the third is digital marketing, which is also working very well for us, right? Very, very focused, targeted Mm -hmm. digital marketing.
1: Mm-hmm. When you go into these larger companies and you know doing your outbound sales, uh, are you are you focusing directly in on the CFO or whoever the you know whoever that top finance person is?
0: Yeah, yeah. So we focus on two things. So one is uh, you know if uh, you are uh, 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 there's a certain size hundred million dollar revenue plus, uh, then okay. we see that ESG is under the CFO's ladder. Otherwise, there is like a chief sustainability officer. Uh, and we focus on them, right? You know, directly having a conversation with them, mm-hmm. uh, and we are at a point where we have product market fit. So a lot of times, right away in the first call, we hear things like, Well, this is exactly the pain point we have." You know, uh, you uh, you have built something which we were looking for for a long time. You know, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, uh, which makes it a lot more easy to do the selling too. Mm-hmm.
1: Chief Sustainability Officer. I think that's the first time I've heard that. So is that, you know, is that taking off? How many, you know, could you even wager a guess of, you know, 100% of the companies out there, how many actually have that role? 2%? (laughs) 1%? No, I I think it's double digit. Uh, You know, uh, I I think in traditional
0: businesses, right, uh, you know, fashion, textile, uh, uh, mining, energy—you you you, sure. you now by default have a chief sustainability officer. Uh, in uh, in modern businesses like tech, uh, you you call them chief impact officer. You know diversity mm-hmm. of uh, you know person, chief of diversity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but it's there now, right? It's it's definitely there. You know in higher digit, uh, double digit.
1: So you you mentioned that you know you are you typically targeting the north of one hundred million dollar company. Or, yes, you know, where's yes. your, so, okay. So, so have, have any, you know, is it that these smaller companies are just not in your sweet spot or they're just not thinking about this as yet?
0: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very, very good question, right? So what happens is, you know, once you're north of hundred million, uh, this falls under compliance for you. So uh, you have almost like, uh, there's a forcing function to start doing something about this, uh, you know, the data yeah, management piece. Yeah. So the sale is a lot more easier and then uh, we once we start working with them their suppliers who are smaller mm-hmm. we onboard them on the platform mm-hmm. uh, and then we start upselling to them right so there's a network effect which naturally happens in our product uh, where you know uh, if we uh, uh, if we got like a huge book company book publisher mm-hmm. their mm-hmm. suppliers will be onboarded uh, then you know they they have to use the product uh, to provide data, and once they start doing that, we can we can upsell them and get them on our kind of paid uh, tier. Got it.
1: So you, you all founded the company about four and a half years ago, and let's talk a little bit about you're up to about twenty five full time employees, and then you've got also got about a handful of contractors. I know. Um, at, at what point did you actually start hiring people? And tell me a little bit about your talent strategy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's uh, almost. I, I have strongly started
0: to feel that the talent strategy is the most important thing, Mm. and the reason I say is, as a startup, uh, the penalty for a bad hire is extremely high, extremely high. Right. I've learned that the hard way. Yeah. Uh, And uh, what we did was initially for almost a year. Uh, we were uh, prototyping, MVPing, moonlighting, right. you mm-hmm. know. Uh, and at that point, we said, you know, let's let's just figure out. We we all had exits. So we were in a good spot. We said, let's let's understand the market and also prototype and MVP the product. Right. You know, let's try to uh, figure out. You know, what is the product? Showcase it to a few people. So at that point, uh, we had just one developer full time, uh, and then we were just the founders who were involved. Mm -hmm. You know, after about 18 months, we started incrementally increasing the engineering team first, right? Uh, And uh, our key (laughs) hire outside of engineering was a product manager after that, Mm -hmm. right? And uh, almost after two years, the initial selling the founders did. And after two years, we started building the commercial team, right? Which was all around the sales and then marketing. Got it.
1: So, so, and, and, and currently your employees are in the U S the UK and in India. Correct. Um, so, you know, you, you basically founded the company, um, you know, with a remote team, how do you, uh, first of all, did, did, because you were already remote, did COVID impact you? And what are you, what have you been doing to really build a culture in a remote environment? Yeah. Yeah. So COVID,
0: uh, did impact us, right? And, uh, you know, uh, one is uh, it was quite severe in Asia. Uh, as, uh, in India, it was, there was a wave that was very severe. So there right. was definitely an impact of that. Uh, and uh, we very actively promote uh, being in the office. Uh, so wherever we have an office, we are like, you yeah. know, you have to be there. Uh, we are, uh, you know, early stage, it's important to be together. So that also had an impact, you know, folks couldn't Mm. be in the office that that had uh, quite a big impact, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. I think the way I think about uh, culture in early stage startup is that everyone has to be passionate about what we are doing beyond Mm -hmm. the monetary impact. There has to be a monetary impact. You have to have your cap table, you know, Uh, you have to have a good uh, ESOP uh, structure. Mm-hmm. But but you have to figure out that we are all passionate about what we are building, right? And you are going to mm-hmm. learn something uh, which will change uh, what uh, uh, how much you are valued as an individual. Both just personally with your kind of, you know, how you feel as individual, mm-hmm. your happiness and your uh, kind of market value, right? So I try to reiterate that over and over and over again, that this is not... A normal thing. Startups create new business models, and that's exactly what we are doing. We are building something very new, and being part of this journey today is a massive opportunity. And mm-hmm. then that should that should just we should live and breathe it every day, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and uh, the, doing that just naturally creates a culture where everyone pushes themselves more. You don't have to tell them. They they mm-hmm. come up with a new idea. For example, like I had a project manager earlier this week, very young. Uh, this is her first job. She came up with a plan on how do you become, how this is going to be a billion dollar company in four years. She <laughs> wrote a complete essay on it, right? And she said, I was motivated by the talk you gave in the last all hands. She said, you know, I sat over the weekend and I built this up very Jeff Bezos, Amazon style essay that this is the path to becoming a billion dollar company it's a first job this is the first thing she has done out of college right <laughs> so that's that's the culture right that that passion yeah. is infectious yeah. you know when you uh, interview people when you get people on board uh, yeah. that's that's infectious yeah
1: that and that that of course you know there's there's you know town strategy is very complicated right uh, to build a successful one and i will say that you know north of 50% of employees leave jobs in the first 18 months of their employee for reasons having nothing to do with their skills and abilities right so what's left cultural fit so you know regardless i mean you know let's let's forget about the fact that you do need people with the right skills and abilities and you know you each company has to choose at at what point do they train some of those things up. But, you know, you can have the most perfect skills and abilities fit. If they do not fit into your culture, they're not going to be a success for you, right? So, so the, the passionate point, I think, is one of the many, uh, I would say, one of the common denominators among cultures that build really, uh, you know, companies that build really great cultures, right? That passion for what, you know, for what you're up to. Right. And, and really realizing, and I think that that's, that's, although, you know, people in your generation and my generation, there are those of us who are passionate about environmental change. <laughs> um, yep. But I think it's mostly coming out of Gen Z, you know, younger right. people who want there to be a planet left for them, you know, when, when they get, you know, when they get to the age where they want to start thinking about maybe having children and, you know, building families, you know, do I want to bring a child into the world that's going to be a healthy world or one that's basically falling apart? So I think that's, that's amazing that you were able to find somebody like that who has, who has put this, put this together. Um, Is there anything within the ESG space that, that you would say is like, Any outdated advice or people giving out advice that's just not correct, in your opinion?
0: I think uh, there are a few things happening, right? So one is uh, what's outdated is what's called greenwashing. Uh, And greenwashing is about uh, when a brand, uh, you know, uh, tells that, see, this is, our, our ESG posture is extremely good. You know, we... We, uh, 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 you know, we, we uh, uh, pay well, uh, you know, we have a good uh, split between uh, uh, male and female and we're doing all the right thing, right? Without visibility into their supply chain. So if I'm making, I'm a, a, uh, uh, you know, fashion brand, most of my production is happening somewhere else without visibility into that. If I'm making a set of claims, uh, that's really doesn't add up, right? That's meaningless. Mm -hmm. That's, that's, that's one, right? Uh, and that's a big one. And we believe, uh, as a as a data platform, we are the counter force for greenwashing, right? We are battling against it, right? We are seeing that you know, uh, uh, we we uh, everything we stand for is polar opposite of greenwashing.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. And 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 yeah, I, I I love that. So, where do you, as a as an organization, right? You've you've grown, like I said, up to about twenty, you know, twenty five employees. Um. Where do you see your growth and and where you're investing in resources here over the next year, you know, in 2023? Yeah, yeah. So, so and of course, that, and I'm sure that 12 million dollars in A will help. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So
0: we'll invest in two areas. One is uh, engineering and product. Okay. Uh, and on the uh, product side, it's a lot about how do we be compatible with the different compliances coming around in the world. Mm. Uh, TCFT is one, uh, you know, uh, it will be in the US, in Singapore, you know. uh, uh, And then on the engineering side, right, uh, you know, both uh, scaling the technology, but also adding new capabilities. So that's one kind of bucket, engineering Mm -hmm. and product. And Mm -hmm. the other is, uh, you know, uh, expanding the commercial footprint around the world, having uh, kind of, uh, senior sales folks, uh, the, you know, both in EU and North America, right? Mm-hmm. Increasing the size there,
1: right? Because currently, uh, aren't your your contractors or your salespeople right now? No, no, no. So we have uh,
0: we have a full time sales team, uh, but okay, then we have contractors who are uh,
1: kind of consultants who help uh. on the VizDev side. Okay. Business development side. Got it. Got it. Okay. So I did wanted to get get some clarity on that. So you know, as you had mentioned, you you know, you lived uh, out on the west coast for some time, and now you're mostly living back in Asia. So um, tell me, tell me the impetus behind that move.
0: Yeah. So you know, I yeah. yeah one was you know, the business uh, is uh, is also it's very relevant for business here. We have a lot of mm-hmm. customers here. Uh, and the second was I just wanted to be closer to home. I grew up here. yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, Asia is, is, is booming in a lot of ways, a lot of ways, right? Uh, mm-hmm. India is heavily uh, 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 getting digitalized in a massive mm-hmm. way. Payments are digital here. So I think uh, there's a massive digital opportunity in India. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, even when you think about EQ uh, Worldwide, right? The less than container load company. Yeah. Uh, there is one remarkable thing about this company, which not a lot of people know. But in a business like this, uh, you need what's called like a global uh, uh, system or an ERP, which connects the entire global network,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? Uh, and so this is one of the only companies that has a large... Uh, network which is connected through a single digital platform and uh, really big companies like DHL have also failed in building that right and so that's happening in Asia right companies rooted in Asia are Mm -hmm. uh, taking a massive leap when it comes to digital Uh, so that's super exciting it's just just very very vibrant Mm -hmm. here also so it's both Mm -hmm. personal and professional uh, you know Carol okay what's your day-to-day
1: look like as a leader
0: yeah, yeah. So it starts with, uh, you know, one is, uh, you know, I do this uh, stand up daily with, uh, with, mm-hmm. the, uh, with the founders. It starts there and it starts with uh, what are the key things for today and this week? Just okay. do a check, right? And then what's blocking? Mm-hmm. Uh, then I don't get involved with engineering that much, but I get involved with product, right? Mm-hmm. So I do a product stand up uh and there i'm in for just just to check that you know uh, uh, uh whatever we have planned for this week are we kind of on target there mm-hmm. then the third thing i get involved is with key accounts uh, the the key customers in the pipeline or who have just uh, converted as a customer and it's gone into customer success how we are doing there right so i'll do a check on that uh, kind of uh, every day mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: That's great. And so, so. Um, tell me a little bit about how you spend your time when you're not working. So, I, uh, I,
0: I'm, uh, I'm very, very uh, focused on the uh, idea of presence, uh, Carol. So, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I write a journal every day to be more present. I, I meditate every day with this style called Vipassana, which again allows me to be more present. Mm. Uh, right. And then I do this thing of like, you know, being quiet uh, one day in a week where I don't speak at all uh, wow. uh, if I can. Right. Which again uh, allows me to be more present. Right. So going back to that thing of focus, you know, uh, I feel like uh, uh, focus is very important. And mm-hmm. I especially, you know, uh, maybe I uh, have a little more difficult time from than just regular uh, folks uh, to focus so I do a lot around presence, right? You know, how do you be more present? Uh, mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time. I have two young daughters. I spend right. a lot of time with them, uh, which is uh, very interesting.
1: How does that go on your day where you don't speak with two young children? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they, they always come and break that. <laughs> they don't, have, they, they don't <laughs> of let they me do. do that the whole day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's really funny. Is there anything that um, I haven't asked you? No, I think I, I I think you know
0: startups are very very interesting, right? And at the end of the day, I get asked this sometimes: that why do you do this? Yeah. You had to exit, you know, uh, and then mm-hmm. uh, especially in India, and and I mm-hmm. think there is there is one thing uh, that is very important as as founders uh, uh, to to realize that uh, that you get this feeling of happiness. When you do this, right? You uh, get this feeling of being in the zone and you will know if that's happening or not. And I feel it's very important to kind of identify that when that's not happening. You know, build your own internal model. Like Mm -hmm. how do you figure out this is not happening, right? Uh, If that's not happening, it's almost like your uh, system internally telling you, you know, change something, you know, this is not happening. Maybe that's not the idea, uh, the right idea for you, the right problem space, the right team, you know. I think if that is not happening, it will be very hard to succeed because uh, you're fighting against multiple headwinds as a startup, right? Multiple, uh, you know, headwinds. Uh, so you, you really have to be in that, in, in that phase, where, which I call the mm-hmm. zone, right? You're super present. You mm-hmm. live and breathe this thing, you know, uh, that is very important. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. So, so, given the fact that you said that, you know, some, some of the, the growth that you'll be looking to do over the next year, if somebody listening to this interview is thinking, wow, I, I love what these guys are up to, I'd be interested in, you know, investigating working for them. What should they do?
0: Yeah. You know, reach out, reach out to me. Uh, my email is jitesh at uh, jitesh at credible.com. Our website is becredible.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you you'll find that, right how to reach out to us reach out to me on linkedin twitter right. anywhere mm-hmm. right yeah. we would uh, love to talk to you
1: yes and and of course those 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 links uh, to you will be in the show notes also uh when this is published live so uh, with that jitesh shetty uh, founder and CEO, co-founder and ceo of credible um, it, it's really been a pleasure um speaking with you today and thanks you know thanks for telling everyone about what you're up to because it's you know it's some it's a game changer thank you thank you thank you carol so much for
0: having me uh, you know i'm super passionate about startups uh, especially what
1: i'm doing now so yeah. we're very very happy to share this story thank you for listening to authentically successful If you are a successful founder or CEO who would like to be on this program, please visit verticalelevation.com slash podcast slash apply. If you learned something from this interview and it made a difference, please share it on LinkedIn or Twitter. You can also do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend. And if you know of someone who would be a great guest, tag them on LinkedIn or Twitter to let them know about the show and include the hashtag authentically successful.